Hi, this is Michael Curtis, and you are listening to Save for Half, so roll them if you got them. School games and the modern games inspired by them. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to the Saber Hat Podcast, a podcast about old school games and the modern games inspired by them. I am DM Mike, here representing the Monster Raving Looney Party. And joining me is DM Liz, a representative of the Kobolds or Puppies 2 Party. Briark. <laughs> and DM Corbett for the Leprechaun Emancipation Party. Because I always after his lucky charms. That's true. You guys keep grabbing my charms. <laughs> Should make a bazooka and blow them away. Oh, wait. <laughs> and finally... DM Jim, representing the Frankenberry Liberation Front. I can't do that voice. <laughs> that's, that's kind of Boris Karloff. Sorry, should I have done Ch- Count Chocula? What Sarah was quick drama grow, grow on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do the thinning around here, and don't you forget it. Uh, and we're here to talk Empire of the Petal Throne, published in 1975 by Tactical Studies Rules. Yes, M.A.R. Barker's famous, or infamous, RPG about the world of Tecumel. Tecumel, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it that. Well, I've seen it with an accent mark over the first E, which makes me think that it should be Tecumel, the emphasis on the first syllable. But again, I am also, yeah, (laughs) maybe I should have actually looked more at the appendix talking about pronunciation. Fair warning to all the... EPT fans out there, we're probably going to totally butcher the pronunciation, so we're sorry. Now to talk about Empire of the Petal Throne. And first we'll go to a pod break. Reach the Pinecomb Motel to have breakfast with Brooke. But I'll be at the Chateau with Adam. A friendly game of all my children turns not so friendly when someone's out to... Ruin Phoebe's hairdo. Read Angie's diary. All My Children turns a proper party into a Pine Valley affair. Testify against Tad. Bring Jesse. All My Children, a game. To be good, you've got to be bad. It's time for Mike and the Mechanics. Sorry, sorry. That's Mike and the Mechanics of the game. My bad. I mean, really, it's D&D, isn't it? I mean, yeah, there's some sort mechanical of. variations, but even in the rules they keep talking about, if you know D&D, if you just copy along, you'll be fine. 
even though the <laughs> mechanics are a little different, but they definitely emulated a lot of the rules over. Yeah, it, it had a real feel of OD&D with house rules-ish to me. It's uh, very original D&D-ish. It's uh, got attributes, strength, intelligence, constitution, dexterity. But instead of wisdom and charisma, you've got comeliness and psychic ability. Also, instead of rolling 3d6, you roll percentile dice for each of them. Which is interesting because that predates uh, BRP Mm -hmm. from Chaosium, which is interesting. They also call attributes talents, too, which I know in 1975, the terminology was still all over the place, but Mm. it it threw me a little, I gotta admit. Anyway, you start with your base talents. They can increase over time with going up levels in various circumstances. They have professions, which are classes, which are warrior, priest, and magician, though throughout the text they refer to them interchangeably as fighter instead of warrior and magic user instead of magician. Priest seems to be pretty constant, though, at least as far as I was able to tell. Hit die are all d6. Interesting part is when you go up in level and you get a new die, you re-roll your entire hit point total. And there goes one of my top five. And there goes one of my top five. Only 17 more to go. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, 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 no. I won't go into any details then. This is a good part about Mike and the mechanics is it forces me to do, go through the discipline of having 10 top fives, just in case. Ah, uh, it actually has a skill system. Um, there are, it's determined by a combination of random roll and then choose from a list, depending on where you end up at. There are also, quote unquote, profession slash class based skills. Magic is kind of like skills in this game. Sometimes you have to roll to see if they work. They all reset at six in the morning. Sort of banshee. All weapons do d6 damage, though some have pluses. And uh, you buy gear and go out, find things in holes, kill them, and take their stuff. That is different. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Now, Empire of the Petal Throne. First impressions, Jim. I have a very special relationship with the TSR version of this game because I imprinted on it at the same time I first was exposed to D&D. The first D&D group I had was, of all things, at the Baptist Student Union at the University of Kentucky in uh, 1979. And there was a, a big gaming corner of the BSU where we were introduced to D&D and Cosmic Encounters and a stack of games people had just contributed and empire of the pedal throne was in that stack so just as i was like getting homes basic and my first player's handbook there was this mystical box that's really pretty even today and uh I, I would like flip through it and pour over it and never saw it in a store. And of course, being a broke college kid, I could barely afford the D&D I bought. So I never got it until two origins ago. And uh, I was at origin signing um, uh, books at the Goodman booth. And uh, this kid whose name right this minute escapes me, but uh, came up to get his book signed and then said, Hey, listen, uh, my uncle passed. And I've been cleaning out his garage and he's got this game in there. I think you'd really enjoy having, I'd like to send you a copy of it. And he sends me a pristine empire, of the pedal throne that even had two blister packs of the licensed minis inside. Ooh. And I, that's when I, so I only first read this uh, all the way through a couple of years ago. Ah. But you know how you, you imprint on those things and you want to go back and collect them because you could never get them when you were a kid? Oh, absolutely. I got half a closet full of those. 
Okay, Corbett, first impressions, which ought to be good because this was your choice. <laughs> I don't know if it's good or not. Well, it's good to a certain point. Well, I First impressions. They don't have to necessarily be good. Or well, no, bad. literally, this is my first impression. It's one of those games that I've always heard about. Literally, it's one thing I love about being on the podcast is that I get to read through things I've always heard about and never really read. And it forces my, my gaze to it. But I came in, I got to admit, built up pretty big because it has recommendations from like every person in gaming ever. I was like, oh, well, of course I played D&D, but then there's Empire of Petal Throne. And like, oh, well, that's the thing. And everyone would mention it in their bio. Like, yeah, I've played Empire of the Petal Throne all the time. So everyone had something nice to say, at least in a quick blurb, without any real details about what it was, where it was from, what it's about, or anything. I did suggest it just because it was one of those games. It was old enough that I had never really read it or played it. After reading it, I can definitely see it's a it is a time capsule of the time and is definitely a foreshadow of what was going to come. And that's pretty cool. It is a lot to swallow. So which for 120 odd pages is saying something. Yeah. Well, I I can save it for later cuz we got plenty yeah, well, to talk well, about. <laughs> yeah, first impression. But no, it was, it was it was a good bitter pill. Okay. <laughs> Please. Ah, oh, my my first impression, like like Corbett said, there's a lot to unpack. I started reading and I was kind of sucked in. There is so much detail. The 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 background of how Tecumel came to be, which I found particularly fascinating. I'm not exactly sure how to say this. I started out going, "Wow, this is pretty cool." As I'm continuing to read, Probably because you know I'm on a I was on a time crunch to read it and I couldn't just pick it up and put it down as I you know liked. I kind of felt like I was starting to have to slog through. There's so much. Yeah, I think if I had been able to read at my leisure, and that's really no one's fault but my own because I put it off longer than I probably should have before starting to read it, but. And this is not something that you can just power through and get everything that it has out of it. Yeah, despite it being basically, for mostly, I'd say about 80% OD&D rules, it's not like you're reading a retro clone. No. It's really, in a lot of ways, its own thing. Yeah, it's very much its own thing. My first impression is there's a lot about this game that is very much its own thing that I have not seen copied so much by others. Very original. And there are other parts of it that not too keen on. But on the whole, my first impression is that Barker deserves the kudos that he gets for you know creating this for its time. And that kind of seems like a cop-out to to give that caveat, but it was pretty groundbreaking stuff. 45 years ago. And that's what struck me as for something that was put out 45 years ago at the very dawn of our hobby, it reads in, I'll say this, only 120-something pages, but it gives a very vibrant world. Yeah, we've gotten used to campaign worlds that do that now, but they usually do it in a lot more words. The actual text of it, I think, hits a real sweet spot for me between detail and clarity without 
getting bogged down in, in lots and lots of minutiae. I know later versions of Takumal tend to have lots more detail than this does, but this was a good amount for me. And if this was a sort of campaign world I would like to adventure in, I would really, really love it. I'd love to see a, a Greyhawk like this or something. That's not a knock on it. You know, it's just not entirely my cup of tea. But back to what Jim was saying, this is one of those games I always saw in Dragon Magazine. People talk about but nobody had it. Nobody I knew had it. Our game stores didn't have it. Nowhere. But it was kind of a grail. So when Corbett recommended it, I was like, at last, I'm going to sit down and read this game. And on the whole, I'm glad I did. The Save for Half Top 5 In 5, 4, 3, 2, Jim, number five. My number five is that I what I love about this is how far ahead of its time it was in 1975. Here, okay, D&D is only a year old, and he uh, self-published it in 74, right after being exposed to the original D&D. Then TSR did their version in 75, and subsequent versions in 87 and 2005 with different publishers. But it's a uh, very deep game setting that's full of genre-mashed elements, science fiction and fantasy put together and technically even it's a post-apocalyptic setting also because it takes place on a medieval alien planet that was terraformed and settled thousands of years ago by humans who then went through a dark ages and fell and came back and the uh, native sentient aliens that they suppressed are now coming back taking advantage of them falling into medievalism and coming back and it's just all kinds of genre mashing wonderment it's very deep it's it's very uh, i read it first a couple of years ago then freshened up on it for the podcast. And then I started reading up more about Professor Barker and suddenly it all made sense. I mean, there was this guy positioned next to Arneson and all the uh, original D&Ders who was himself a science fiction fan. So that's where the science fiction influence came from. Besides being a professor of whatever he was a professor of at college, he was part of the sci-fi Linguist. fandom scene. Yeah. So the genre, genre mashing elements, that's my bread and butter. I love that stuff. Kind of like Dr. Jarek Holmes. Right, right. Very much. Yeah. Very similar. Okay. Uh, Corbett? Yeah, there's a lot of smarty pants guys back then. What happened to those guys? Yeah, it's like smart people gamed or something. <laughs> I'm going to do this because I know Liz is going to take it the second she gets a chance. Thanks for letting me go before her. Yes! <laughs> Houseplants. <laughs> <laughs> I was so going to use that one. <laughs> no, it was. It's, it's something they mention as a total side thing, but in the character creation process, like pretty much you're going to play a human. Unless you play a non-human, which is possible, but they don't really go into a lot of detail about it. They really don't want you to. Yeah, they really don't want you to. But they also say, but you really can't play a non-sentient plant <laughs> or, or semi-sentient plant or non-sentient item. And like, now I so want to play a house plant so bad. <laughs> I don't know why. House plants of gore. <laughs> Finally. I will water you. <laughs> you will water me. I accept his water and I grow. <laughs> I have watered you well. <laughs> okay, but that was the funniest little right. line. You, totally dumb. Your work is done, Liz. Since Corbett brought that up, I'm going to continue on with that. And because in a way, that was one of the things that I had noted down myself. Not focusing on the plant so much, but the game specifically calls out the fact that 
you can't do that. You can't be a magic sword, a supernatural being, or an undead creature, etc. You suck as a referee. Exactly. (laughs) Obviously, power gaming and min-maxing have always been around since the beginning. Because Barker felt the need to specifically point out, no, you can't be a monster. You can't be undead. You can't be supernatural. You can't be this ultra-powerful thing. Just be one of the regular races and pick a class. Word up. The fact that he had to point that out makes me think this was a problem that he was sick of fooling with. Well, considering most gamers at that time were all coming from the war gamer hobby. That's a very good <laughs> point. It's like less than a um, year in, too. Yeah, there's probably a lot of the, shall we say, competitive types. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> uh, let's put it this way i remember reading in a war game magazine somebody complaining about a lot of guys who claimed they had these incredible win ratios in play-by-mail war games and he's like of course they do because when they start losing they stop playing the game they don't send any more letters oh that's how i kept a 3.86 gpa in college man <laughs> about a third of the way in if i'm getting a bad grade i drop that class <laughs> Why, that's terrible, Jim, and I would never, ever do anything exactly like that, especially for stuff that weren't in my history degree. But anyway, as probably not to be surprised by the author being an anthropologist and a linguist, languages are exceedingly important in this Mm. game, even more so than D&D. I mean, my gosh, he gives a pronunciation guide for the language that he made up for the game. That alphabet was beautiful, but my eyes probably didn't read it any better than your OCR software might. Yeah. (laughs) It was just squiggles. Yeah. A lot of the verbiage in there for the made up names and stuff, I didn't even bother to try to check. It's like, okay, it's a bunch of vowels. I don't know. But yeah, languages of different races, different characters, very, very important. So, Jim? I'm going to drop down into the rules because generally what I found, I took a real John Peterson attitude when I reread this very seriously to try and understand the mic and mechanics part you just went through. From a, like a archaeological perspective, it's really interesting to see Professor Barker work through his own solutions to the things that were all up in the air at the time. Because like there's not even Holmes Basic or any AD&D then. I think uh, Empire of the Petal Throne gets credit for being the first introduction to critical hits. If you roll a 20 in combat, you do double damage. Ah! You manage to roll two 20s in combat in a row, it's a death blow. Automatic. Bang. They're dead. And that's and this is 1975, for crying out loud. I was 14 then. Was it standard before? I mean, what really was kind of a house rule only? That is a double damage for a net 20. That, unless it was in some really, really early Judges Guild that I don't recall, I think this may be the first time it was categorically published. Okay, that's what I was kind of thinking, but I wasn't sure. I didn't know if I wanted to plant the flag on that. Yeah, By TSR, no less, you know, with Gary's oh, famous yeah. attitude towards all those things. Gary was a lot like Steve Jobs. He would tell you he hated something and they would never, ever do it until they did it. <laughs> yeah, well, go where the money is, I guess. All right, Corbett. But I really like the simplistic nature of the, and, and that sounds mean. I really liked the straightforward nature, sounds better, <laughs> of the alignment setup of just good bad there's no no variation no like <laughs> i can't wait to hear what liz thinks about a two-point alignment a two point. you're good or you're bad well, it's, it's, it. it's a very star wars style like there's good and there's evil and if you're neutral you're just basically waiting to pick which side you're going to be on 
And it's really kind of the way you want a story to feel anyway. If you want it Flash Gordon-y, and I did get a lot of Flash Gordon throwback in this, where it was kind of 1930s slash 1950s pulp genre stuff. Yeah, this is very pulpy. It's interesting, subsequent versions of Tecumel change it to stability and change instead of good and hmm. evil, which I find ironic, because that's closer to law and chaos than... Yeah, good point. It's kind of true though but yeah okay liz see if you could take one of mine too <laughs> let's gang up on mike <laughs> i'm two for two now well, i'm gonna say so far corbett and i have been working along very similar thought processes because one of the things that i had put down as well was about the good and evil to alignment system however the thing that i wanted to talk about it was that i like the way Barker does it here, as opposed to the basic experts, lawful and chaotic to alignment system. Intellectually, I get that lawful chaotic for BX is based on Paul Anderson's Three Hearts and Three Lions novel, but I still maintain that the way it is used in BX is simply a substitute for good and evil. And since I started with Holmes and its five-point alignment system, my brain will not accept that being chaotic is automatically being evil and being lawful is automatically being good. The terms are not mutually exclusive. You can be chaotic and be good. I firmly believe that. And so I've never been able to wrap my brain around using lawful chaotic to alignment system because of that. So I like that it's good and evil here. And I'm not too pleased to hear that in later versions of this, he changed it to stability and change because sometimes change is good too. <laughs> so mm. <laughs> on the other hand, the cultures that he based, uh, to cumul off of India and the and the Far East, change is usually considered a bad thing. Order and stability are good things. I will have to disagree with that. There are times when order and stability is good. Oh no, I'm a, I agree with you. I'm just saying, you know, it was put in that way because of the cultural backdrop. Regardless of why it was done, I did not like hearing about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think the way it's done right here with good and evil, it is simple. It gets the point. You don't need to muddy the waters with weird terminology. Okay, my number four. To quote the, the segment of a podcast I listened to about Blake 7 called Spacefall, look, it was the 1970s. <laughs> One of the things, starting with Holmes Basic, that sticks in my mind is the ages 12 and up. Empire of the Petal Throne is not meant for ages 12 and up. I quote, Exhibit A, Nayari of the Silken Thigh, <laughs> a noted person of the history. There is a picture of her in the book. You know that, right? No, I don't know that because I'm blind. <laughs> There's boobies. Look, it was the 1970s. You know, I will say she was a cool character, though. Like reading through the history, she was a very interesting character. But if yeah. you tried to put a game out and put to Toys R Us, for 12 and up with boobies in it, I think even in 2020, you'd still get nailed. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people were hoping for exactly that from her. No. <laughs> Exhibit B, a magic item. Eye of exquisite power over maidens. Now, in the description, it says opposite sex. So if you're a guy using it, it's to women. If you're a woman using it, it's to guys. But the title, wow. It was a seven. All I got to say. Okay, Jim, three. I love the magic system in this game. And 
I caught myself liking it and went, well, wait a minute, they did this and they did this, but that was all later. The uh, magic system has got two facets. One is just skill-based abilities you get based on how high your, if you choose to be a magic user and how high your psychic ability is, i.e. wisdom. They're almost like cantrips. These are just things you can do. Hide yourself, turn invisible, find out something. And then later on, there are legitimate spells. And for 1975, these spells are actually written out explicitly. There won't be any spell descriptions of this quality until Holmes Basic and later the Player's Handbook. We got Tim Cast to run an OD&D campaign here in town years ago for like a year and a half. Try casting those spells and arguing those little dinky brown book descriptions with you know Tim Cask. You can't do it. It's whatever he says it is. You know, they were of their time, but for this to be of its time, those spell descriptions are wonderful. They tell you exactly what it does. They're well-written. They're well-organized. The whole magic system is pretty cool. But it doesn't get drowned in verbiage either. The descriptions are concise but complete. You imprint on what you imprint on. I grew up on Gygax, so I like the little, I know it, these are all the components, and this is how many segments it takes to cast. I grew up on that and imprinted on it, so I like that. This doesn't even need that. It's explicit in a paragraph. So yay for the magic system on Tecumel. <laughs> okay, Corbett? Sexism. Yeah, sexism. That was um weird. <laughs> it was like he was very progressively not sexist in a very overtly way. I don't know. It was bizarre. He, he openly says, like, when you choose your sex in the creation of your character, women... You mean the Eridani? Yeah, the Eridani. If you're, if you're a woman, you have to be an Eridani. Otherwise, you're a sub, you know, a sub-sexual person. And in all the descriptions, too, they're like the, the silken thighs, the uh, Naraya, the, she was this amazing leader, well, slash tyrant, and like, and she was a woman. Like, okay. I mean, I, I knew she was a woman when you said she, but... <laughs> Thanks. And there was a lot of verbiage like that. Like, you know, even a woman could do it. Like, yeah. Okay. It didn't totally piss me off. It was just kind of, thank you. Yeah. Liz Liz and I were talking about it last night. It's like, how come there's no Prince Lothar of the washboard (laughs) ass? Well, right. This isn't even because it... Look, it was the 70s. This is an author who was born in 1929. Yeah. No, he was, and he yeah. was being very polite about it. Like, oh, they, they, even women can do these things. But it was sort of, uh, I guess, a side slap kind of, I don't know. Sort of like Len Lakofka's article from Dragon. Yeah. Yeah. The staff gamer in D&D. I don't doubt in the slightest that Len thought he was being open-minded, progressive, and was trying to encourage women to play D&D. I don't doubt that at all, but it came across, especially to modernize, as ouch. Yeah, a little bit. Sometimes it's worse when you try. Like, imagine if H.P. Lovecraft had tried not to be racist. That might have been ah, worse. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that, that would not have well. Yeah. It's, it, wasn't, it, was, it wasn't as bad or overt as other games i've read so it wasn't like oh no but it was very star yeah yeah (laughs) okay let's go (laughs) and don't worry your opinion's valid too even though you're a woman (laughs) (laughs) even women's opinions are valid yeah oh what are you talking about she's the mother of all podcasts (laughs) we'll have a lot to say about that later (laughs) well i'm going to talk about the foreword to the game written by gary gygax in it, he compares Barker and his world favorably with J.R.R. Tolkien and Tolkien's Middle-earth. But what really struck me about the foreword and that comparison 
was we've just spent the last couple of shows talking about the Hero's Journey RPG. And in the foreword, Gygax states how unfortunate it was that Tolkien did not ever create a fantasy game to allow his readers the opportunity to share even more in his Middle Earth through adventures and campaigns. And I'm reading that going, well, fortunately, James Spawn has stepped up <laughs> to that <welcome>. task. <laughs> Because <laughs> we've got that now. But it took a guy who wasn't even born in 1975 yet, but we got there. Exactly. We finally got there. Obviously, Gygax was not the only person to think that it was unfortunate. But reading through the game after the foreword, it is very easy to make comparisons between the world-building work that Barker has done with Tecumel and the work that... Tolkien did with his own Middle Earth and the languages, the races, etc. Doesn't Gary even say it's like the greatest fantasy game or something along those lines that makes me kind of go, wait a minute, didn't you write the greatest fantasy game? I am lost. <laughs> I think he meant in the context well, of a world, maybe. I, 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 I just yeah. remember reading it going, wow, he's like super big on this guy. And it's cool, but <laughs> it's just surprising. Okay, well... My number three, this shall come as a surprise to no one, the skill system. <laughs> you love it, right? It's fine. Because it makes perfect sense in every way. Um, It's 1975. It's arguably the first skill system. It's kind of secondary skills, but with a bit more specifics. I mean, you roll randomly depending on whether you're plebeian, skilled, or noble, but then you get to choose the skills from that. So it's a nice compromise of random and choice. There are 57 skills, which may be a bit much, but considering a lot of them are like the same from the secondary skills that showed up later in the DM guide, you know, like Boer, Fletcher, Navigator. Although it's funny, my OCR, when it scanned, kept various tables side to side rather than moving them up and down. So at one point it read Dire Navigator. Of course, it meant <laughs> D-Y-E-R. As in, you know, a dyer of clothing, but it just said dyer, then navigator, then move to the next line. That is a big navigator, let me tell you. <laughs> I want to be a dire navigator. That's a scary navigator there. But does he have his sextant? Anyway, so that's my three. I will say you can increase your skills in play, but it costs money and training quote unquote, but it's not really training to go up in level, it's training specifically in skills. And since the skills are percentile as well, you've got a lot of potential improvement range there. As far as skill systems go, this isn't a bad one. I don't know quite how I feel about skill trees, which are kind of how the class ones are done, but you know, they're, they're fine. They're fine. I would play, I could play the system and not bother me. <laughs> Okay, two, Jim. I've got a feeling if Professor Barker was running it, we would all enjoy a game because Dave Arneson claimed Professor Barker was his favorite GM. That's quite a kudo. Yeah. Um, what are we on? Four? Four. My number four uh, is in to answer to some of Corbett's questions. I'd like to say a couple of weeks ago, I knew we were doing this podcast, so I asked him about it, but I forgot we were doing Empire of the Petal Throne. I Just a couple of weeks ago, by coincidence, Tim and I were doing one of our two-hour old man sessions in a cellar, and this came up. Turns out, Tim told me the story. Turns out that he went with Gary to visit Professor Barker at his house to... Uh, talk about doing the deal to publish this game. And it was very interesting to hear Tim tell the story of how starstruck Gary Gygax was. I mean, they, it, he lived in an old, you know, one of those nice old hundred something year old houses, very well furnished, lots of like museum quality 
swords and things on display and Gary was very starstruck and in awe of him and super agreeable to publishing all this. So there wasn't a lot of business thinking going on. And before this turns into like a flame war in some form, which I won't know because I never go to forums. This is just my version of Tim's version of what Gary experienced. So three levels removed. He said that in the beginning, when they were in the talking stages, they were all in because here was, you know, this professor already written and self-published 50 copies of uh, this complex, deep, thought through entire world, culture, society, and planet with alien races based on a game that in 1975, they had just published a year ago. So Gary was like super flattered that there was even any interest in him agreeing to have his game published by DSR. Uh, so the hopes in the beginning were very high that this was going to be like the next great thing. And as we've kind of pointed out, in a lot of ways, this game was what Professor Barker written was so far ahead of its time that it was almost doomed to fail in 1975. Yeah, I don't think the audience of RPGs at the time were ready yet for something like this. I think it's super interesting that two of the initial responses to D&D were Arduin and Tecomel, and you couldn't think of two different more different approaches mm -hmm. to creating your own D&D world, but they're both really super informed by the West Coast science fiction fans and Professor Barker being a science fiction fan. And Takumal is one of those things that always pops up again and again. You know, every five or ten years, some, it, you know, so there's obviously interest out there. All right, number two for Corbett. You know, we've been talking about how well-developed and how great it is. And it is. It is a really well-developed, well-written background. It's a cool idea. It's essentially kind of Thundar the Barbarian. In a, I mean, to strip it down to the quick idea of it's sort of a future past reversed fantasy world for anybody who has never read it. You know, we went out and colonized a planet and then that planet basically gets removed from reality somehow or maybe wound up getting thrown out into deep space i don't know but then then 25,000 years pass and everything is all broken down and and kind of rebuilt and uh it's pretty cool however i will state this it is a blunt bat of information to the back of the head <laughs> in, a, in, in a nice way but it is a, the way i would say i i felt like that i've spent the last week and a half reading it and i would say liz is probably not wrong with the trudge feel after a while because it's like saying you know somebody walks in with a diet coke you know oh hey where'd you get that diet coke well let me explain 26,000 years ago, my ancestors left the Savannah. And <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's great. Six months it later. It's a great story, but it's just like an immense amount of information. <laughs> Can I interject? Go for it. I mean, in, in fairness, Corbett, the four of us as reviewers, we don't even give the gazetteers, the D&D gazetteers that everybody loved a pass because we're four game masters who like to create our I own gave stuff. Gave a three and a half out of five. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm just acknowledging that as a listener, yeah, your mileage yeah. may vary. Um, That's true. This, this is not my cup of tea either, and I would never run it because it's well, too much the stuff. I, I want to make my own stuff. Right. Up. But the stories are good. Um, the culture is different and interesting. And to be fair, the history is only like what right. ten pages. I mean, it's it's not like yeah. the Bible, <laughs> or or even you know, you know several of the 
gazetteers. Yeah. But it is a dense amount of information. And the way the information is distributed to you, it's very clear that these are just bits. There's lots more to tell. Oh, yeah. And it's good. Well, it's like eating a very rich meal. You can't just gorge yourself on it the way you could with something that wasn't so intense. Mm. I really do feel that for me, Petal Throne, this is not something I could just read and read and read and read and read. You should read small bits. You should stop for a while. Maybe think about them somewhat. Dive back in again portions, for a little while. Several courses. What's great about the review we're giving it is <laughs> that a copy of this cost you 300 bucks on eBay. So if like us, this was your, you, you never got it as a kid. Now I'm going to get it. Now you're better informed before you spend right. 300 dollars on ebay and mm, as a side note point. this was 25 bucks at the time which is like 120 today so it weren't cheap even back in the day it was even more expensive than D D was and D was frequently bashed for being pricey well i don't want to complain about it too much but i did want to point out it's good storytelling it's really good storytelling but it is a lot to absorb. Liz, you're number two. I would like to talk about further on in the rules. Uh, there's a section where Barker goes into developing an underworld. In it, he gives excellent tips for a new GM in creating their own dungeon complexes. Now, and even if you've done this yourself before for a while, I still think that there's good stuff that you can get out of it. He gives an excuse for why dungeon complexes exist in Tecumel, you know, the various cataclysms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's also a custom uh, called Ditlana. I like that. Yeah, the ceremonial renewing of cities every 500 years. They deliberately raise the foundations of an old city. New and uh, supposedly better buildings are built on top. And so you've got you know, built-in dungeons that are always going to be created throughout the campaign world as you're playing in it. You know, not only are you going to find things of the ancients, but they're constantly rebuilding cities on top of their old cities. But he talks about how you would go about creating a dungeon, how you don't have to build levels directly on top of one another. They can be, you know, to the side, you know, down at an angle. And he goes into what he calls Saturday yeah, night specials. I love that term. You know, areas that that would give an otherwise bland dungeon setting its own individual personality and flair. As in everything else, he puts in a lot of thought into how you could, if not necessarily should, go about creating your very own dungeons and what you should think about. And if you don't have the time to think about it, you can do it randomly, but maybe put in a couple of things within that random dungeon, the Saturday night specials, that will give it the impression of having been thought out, even if it wasn't totally thought out. Okay. Mine number two. The magic items. I thought they were really interesting, and there's several I would like to steal for D&D, honestly. Now we're talking. <laughs> Some of them, the amulets, you know, but the eyes are pretty interesting. They're obviously described to sound like a technological item, but... They do all sorts of bizarre things. Like I mentioned the Power Over Maidens one earlier. There's one that's a horrible lightning doom and 
the the gaseous doom one I thought was pretty interesting, except the way it was described, <laughs> you had to roll randomly to see if it was nerve gas or other things, or it can be something harmless like oxygen. Not necessarily. <laughs> Especially when you have a torch. That could be bad. Now, nitrogen oxygen, okay, but that's a nitpick. Well, I did like the name of that one because I just thought of, you know, otherwise known as the Eye of Eating 20 Burritos. You know? <laughs> um, he uses a D12 a lot in determining the effects of various magic items, which I'm always for. My favorite, though, has to be the thoroughly useful eye. What does it do? It recharges other eyes or other magic items, and it does not have charges. However, they mentioned there's only two known in the world, so super, super rare. But, I mean, that is a magic item I've never really heard of, say, in D&D or something, but it seems so obvious. A magic item that recharges other items. <laughs> right. Mike, would you say it's fair to say that Empire of the Petal Throne is even more influenced by Jack Vance than D&D? Possibly. I'm not a really a big reader of Jack Vance, so I really couldn't say. You probably know more about Vance than I do. Well, I mean, just the, the magic items you're describing and the ones that I've I oh, read yeah, like and, the, the and, the, and the fancy and... names and the cool powers and it's it acts like magic, but it's really based on technology. Yeah. Okay, that's my two. I really like the magic items. I think they have imagination. The, even the magic weapons seem to have more flair than the standard plus one sword. I would definitely raid this for magic items. Definitely. All right, Jim, take us home. Number one. I wanted to figure out as I was studying up on this, what happened to the game, you know, beyond my personal one-on-one -on -one response to it. Why wasn't it the next great thing? Why did TSR only publish the one box set, given everything we've talked about, how deep and great and fantastic it is? So it was a little ahead of its time. A lot of things were ahead of its time. D&D &D was ahead of its time. So I'm no John Peterson, but uh, I hope he writes us and, and corrects me if I get anything wrong. From what I was able to figure out, Empire of the Petal Throne was a complete marketing and business deal mess. And that's what killed the game. It didn't sell well for TSR because, you know, you could get OD&D for 10 bucks. And as you pointed out, it cost 20. And, you know, that was a lot of money then. I didn't have 20 bucks to spend anything when I was 14. Yeah. And you got a lot. The box set is great because the rule book is a hundred and some odd pages. It had to be spiral bound. They couldn't even saddle stitch it. There's three giant folding maps that are great, high quality maps. And they're full color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, pullout sheets are like eight and a half by 11, four pages. So you, you got a lot, but it didn't sell well. Oh, and it came with dice, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, 2D20. Because the, the was still coming or with two chips. percentiles, yeah. And uh, it didn't sell well, and they didn't market it or support it. Kind of like, what happened to first edition Gamma World or even Metamorphosis Alpha before that. My research has revealed that it was because of business dealings at TSR in the early days. They liked to, in the very earliest days, they liked to write really good deals that gave the author or artist a royalty, then had buyer's regret later. So Tim had already told me how starstruck Gary was, and then I'm reading up on this online and finding out that the deal Professor Barker had gave him a generous royalty cut, and that meant TSR not only wasn't selling many copies, but they weren't making as much money on the copies they did sell. 
So at some point they just said, okay, well, we're not going to support this anymore and, you know, go through the normal business thing at deep discounts. And this is like the second or third time I've heard a version of this. So I, when I say TSR, don't blame Gary necessarily. But Mike Carr told me when I was interviewing him that that's why B2 got swapped out for B1 in the box set was because he had a great royalty deal. He made like two bucks every copy of that box set that got sold or some, something, some amount like that, yeah. that upset Brian Bloom, you know, and so they reached a point where they're like, we're not paying him anymore. Give me another module. Yeah. And I've always hypothesized that the whole origin of Gamma World probably was because of the royalty deal Jim Ward had on Metamorphosis Alpha. You know, why didn't they just do more Metamorphosis Alpha and go all the way to a new game system? I had always wondered that, personally. I heard the argument of, well, Gamma World gives a wider scope to game, and I'm like, Warden is as big as you need it to be. Why Why is that an I issue? I would bet you 100 gold pieces it was to get Jim Ward on a better contract for TSR. Sadly, that's probably true. So, uh... Man, that kind of sucks. It all comes down to money. Yeah. Well, just like gamers haven't changed in 40 years, a lot of this hasn't changed <laughs> in 40 years either. Sorry, my number one was a downer for you, Corbett. But I thought it was super interesting <laughs> just to understand why I saw this thing in 1979 and then it vanished. I mean, it was republished by different worlds and some Canadian company called Guardians or something later, but it never got its due. I just, I, Corbett, my deal is I have a soft spot for the underdogs and the things that don't get its due. I mean, the whole reason I wrote Mutant Crawl Classics was as a giant valentine in Gamma World because I never thought Gamma World got it to do ever to this day. Okay. I got speechifying. <laughs> Corbett, number one. Burbage. I think Burbage in this is sort of, it's it's interesting because I know it's like a, literally the what second or third role-playing game being made. So it's okay. And they do keep changing between like warrior, fighter, and fighting man which I think is interesting. But the one thing that popped up a lot in the combat section specifically, he keeps referring to making a dice roll as shaking the dice or, or taking a shake. Yeah, I noticed that. Like a Yahtzee cup roll. And I, I was wondering if that's like a normal thing for wargaming at the time. He does change the way you say certain things in certain sections. And I don't know why. It's not so much an inconsistency, frustration, more of a curiosity as to like the shake thing. Yeah. Is it just an exchange of words or is it like the average dice slash court? Yeah. Yeah. You know, is it is it a specific term? We're just not catching because it's not 1975. <sighs> if it was only 1975. Yeah. I'd be six. <laughs> <laughs> and we could all get leisure suits. <sighs> <laughs> Except Liz. She'd get two leisure, leisure suits. Aw, thanks. She wasn't even born in 75. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, the suits will be waiting on her for when she is born. In 1989. Yeah. <laughs> That'd make her... No, no, she'd be 99. 99. Yes, she was born in 99. That's um. That's a good trick. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, talk about arranged marriages, right, Liz? <laughs> Considering we were married in 93, if I yeah, wasn't even I mean... born until 99. <laughs> Definitely sounds like there was a TARDIS involved. I think in so. <laughs> but you're finally legal now. Yay. Let me explain it from the beginning. You see, 26,000 oh, years God. ago, our ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Liz, you're number, number one. one. All righty. This one isn't much. 
But I just wanted to point out that I think I think a lot of Barker's rules decisions from the way that I read it, I saw as coming from a point of view that I am sick and tired of having to put up with this crap at the table. And so I am writing rules into my game, specifically saying that this crap at the table is not allowed. <laughs> Who says playtesting can't help? That's right. Uh, <laughs> if that is the case, you know, I am 100% behind him and and I fully understand where he's coming from. But the whole thing, like both Corbett and I mentioned before, you can't play certain types of beings. And he also talks about how specifically evil characters cannot do party infighting. Yeah, players can't, PCs can't fight each other during an adventure. Right, you know, if you get pissed off at one of your other, at one of the player characters around the table, you know, maybe you can do a duel or something, but it's like you never attack each other within your own party. It's like once a group has disbanded, evil characters may state their intentions to begin hostilities with one or more of the ex-members of the group at the start of the following adventure. I just got the impression reading some of this stuff that Barker's going, I don't want to put up with this anymore. It's like, no, you can't do that. It's right here in the rules that you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, I think another thing that plays off that is how all PCs are encouraged to be foreigners coming to the city. Mm-hmm. And you stay in the foreign quarter, and it's kind of implied you're stuck there until you're hired by a citizen to go do something. Yeah, because if you try to leave when you're not supposed to, there's yeah. a good chance that you're going to do or say something out of ignorance that's going to piss somebody off. No matter what you do as a crime, the punishment is death. Death <laughs> for everything, you know? Death. Death. <laughs> You picked your nose in public, and I found that very Death. offensive. Kill him. <laughs> you, you picked your nose in private. I found that offensive. Kill him. <laughs> it's almost as if Professor Barker wrote these rules as a result of playtesting with guys like Ernie Gygax and Mike Menard and Dave Arneson. <laughs> it's like, what are the odds of that? It's like, right? I am going to do everything I can <laughs> to pull the rug out from troublesome players. And I've been in enough games in conventions and stuff that I can see where he's coming from. I really can. You know? <laughs> well, you know what it's like when you're the DM and you've got a plan. The paladin gets the, the talking sword, no matter what. Uh, but then there's also seems to be, you know, times you find yourself in a group and there's that one player who really appears to be deliberately trying to make trouble. And as a fellow player, it's annoying to me. I can only imagine how annoying it is when you are the DM and you've got this person at the table who seems to be going out of their way to deliberately try to make trouble for you. Well, right. That's what you're actually reacting at, because they've been doing it for 40, 50 years now. They've been trying to write rules to fix bad players and bad DMs. You can't do it. You yeah, can't. you can't. But I mean, society can't control them. How is the game done? Yeah. But he yeah. seems to be doing his damnedest here. <laughs> he, he gave it a shot, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Ye old college try. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, is that it, Liz? That, that is it. I think I've said more okay. than enough. <laughs> My number one, 
and it's been touched on earlier and just a second ago in one instance, but it is the beginning, even more so than D&D, of a lot of the what we consider tropes of gaming. You can read it here. There's, of course, the Nat 20 makes double damage, the no party infighting allowed, because we've all known the horrors of trying to DM a group that's determined to kill each other. A skill system two editions before D&D had them. Yeah. Another one I have never seen before, and it's something that always struck me as odd. This empire specifically suggests that you really should get torchbearers and how to get them. It also kind of leaned into slavery on that point. Slavery is big. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of slavery going on. Lots and lots of slavery. But that's another issue. I didn't know about torchbearers, frankly, until Dragon Magazine. Mm. And usually as much in the comedy section, the dragon mirth as anything. But I've, I've heard that torchbearers were just incredibly common in the Great Lakes area. But down in the south where I gamed, we never got torchbearers. There was a we're there was a cheap. time before everybody figured out just to throw continual light on a rock. Yeah, and that if we have a torchbearer and they survive, we got to give them a cut or at least a chunk of change. Like, forget that. We're too cheap. <laughs> so I, I found it very interesting that another thing that became at least a, a trope to Great Lakes gamers, the torchbearer, was specifically mentioned here too. There's probably no way to really know, but I'm kind of curious how much of this was Barker and did Gygax submit anything other than the forwards? Or was this Barker's experience in gaming with said Ernie Gygax and Tim Cask and Dave Arneson, etc. I'll have to go back and ask Tim because I thought I saw things in Empire of the Petal Throne that Gary took and put into D&D afterwards. I'll have to ask him about that. Yeah, maybe it's just a chicken of the egg argument, but it'd be curious. So, all right, that's been our top five. Now we will have a bumper talking about all the nifty places you can find us on the net, and then we'll go into what saves and what takes half. You've been listening to the Save for Half podcast. A podcast about old school role-playing games and the modern games inspired by them. You can write us at podcast at gmail.com or visit our website at www.saveforhalf.com where you can read blog posts or comment on shows. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash saveforhalf and our forums at osr.org and odnd74.proboards.com And if you're enjoying the show, feel free to check out our Patreon page and help support to keep these shows running. The Save for Half podcast is produced for entertainment purposes only. All other uses are strictly forbidden. Penalties include level loss, attribute reduction, or being beaten to death by your hirelings. What makes a save, and what is going to take half? What makes a save, and what takes half damage? And this time we'll start with Liz. What makes the save? Well, I'm going to... Houseplants. Houseplants. (laughs) Houseplants always make the save. (laughs) But I'm going to reiterate, you know, what we have all talked about. It's extremely obvious that Professor Barker spent many years creating this world. The background is just so rich, varied, and well thought out that it 
really just defies description. The history of Tecumel is fascinating. A world which started out as an alien colony, terraformed by space-faring humans. You don't know. He leaves that up to whoever the GM is making their own campaign world, whether it's through dark magics or scientific experiments or just something weird that happened to happen in their corner of space. Their world was transported into what's effectively an alternate dimension and it's completely Dark realm. yeah completely cutting it off from the rest of its fellow interstellar worlds you know everything just falls into chaos anarchy and unleashing cosmic destruction yeah you know much of the knowledge is lost and it doesn't look as though there's really going to be any way to ever get it back i really really enjoyed reading all of that. And I kind of got to say, you know, talking about being pulled into another dimension, you know, Mike and I were talking about it just the other evening. It's like, yeah, it's kind of like they went into e-space from Doctor Who. <laughs> right on, right on. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I read about that and I was thinking, this sounds like a Doctor Who episode, doesn't like, it? Yeah, they're in e-space. <laughs> the mandatory Doctor Who reference in this show has been brought to you by DM Liz. So that, I think, is really one of the hugest pluses and strengths that Petal Throne has is there's just, there is so much and you don't even have to take all of it. You could just take the stuff that you like and there is so much to choose from that, you know, it would be easy. What takes half? And again, this is something that we've touched on earlier in the episode, but for me, what really does not make the save at all is what I consider to be the casual misogyny that is rampant throughout the book. It's pretty clear from my reading, girls were not expected to be playing in the first place. And the role of women, from PCs and NPCs to goddesses themselves, is colored by the general view of them in the time period. Women who are considered the equals of men are rare. Mike talks about the eye of exquisite power over maidens, which, you know, it should actually have been called the eye of exquisite power over others, because women could also use it. But it's it's just That's not the Yeah, name. it's yeah. an example of the lack of thought that girls would be playing to begin with. You get them, Liz. Talking about the gods and goddesses, it is the evil goddess that is worshipped by people who engage in depraved acts of sexuality. None of the evil gods or their cohorts make any mention of those kinds of rites or activities. Only the Because the goddess is a good girl. Yeah. Only the evil goddess and her cohort. They talk about that in great detail when talking about the evil goddess and her cohort. For anyone who's listening, I don't want to give the impression that I think Barker hated women. I don't think that at all. By casual misogyny, I mean that I believe it was genuinely thoughtless, and it was not deliberately done in any way. But it's a reflection of how women were looked upon at the time. Like Mike said, it was the 70s. Mm. <laughs> That's Well, and as Jim said, you know, he was born in, what, 26? Yeah. 1929. Yeah. And I was a teenager in the 70s, and I knew better. Yeah. So it wasn't the 70s. I would say he was generally trying to raise women up, but it seemed like, oh, what do you call it? Like patting him on the head. Patronizing? 
Yeah. That's how it comes across. I don't think that's how he meant it at all. But there are or there were no men that I read about going through the rules. I did not read about any historical male figures with the possible exception of uh, one of the emperors where they talk about how beautiful daughters are given to him. Mm. He impregnates them and then they're sent off to be priestesses of the goddess and they don't get to do anything other than just have his babies. But as far Mm. as orgies, depraved sex, any of that kind of stuff, it's always women that are indulging in that sort of thing, whether it's what's her head of the silken thighs, the evil goddess, whatever. They're the only ones that are specifically called out for that kind of activity and behavior. And yet, is it a stock of of pulp fantasy? Yeah. It was prevalent, to be sure, but I, I want to recant on, you know, being born in 1929 doesn't get you off the hook either, because Edgar Rice Burroughs' Barsoom had, I mean, it's of its time, but there are heroic, strong women figures throughout. Yeah, Thuvia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so Burroughs, you could look at and say, okay, well, it was of its time, but you don't you don't get off the hook like that for this okay fair cop corbett makes the save actually you know it's something nobody really mentioned but i I thought it was kind of nice and very streamlined and very simple the three profession system the the warrior the priest and the the wizard which honestly i still think you could streamline it down to two but that's beside the point i I do feel like that was really it's it is streamlined i think it would it would be difficult for me to kind of wrap my head around it for starting out but i think i could get used to that well it's like we've talked about in other games where we we say oh well the warriors you're you're a barbarian so you're basically a warrior you're just rough and you're a paladin so you're basically a warrior but you're pious you're a um you're a druid but you're basically a priest but you know it all has a certain root system and and the fact that he cut it down to just those three and it could have been that there was only i mean there was only three at the time wasn't there it was right with original dnd is biter cleric magic user. profession wise they um he he does not want you to play well he doesn't not not want you to play a non-human but he really doesn't seem to want you to play non-human Gygax did that in D&D too but I think Barker's even more well but he, it's the first real again first first step in the world of a non uh race based class like oh well you're going to be a was it pak choi or a pa I forgot what they're called now the, the insect guys yeah, the pechoi pechoi they're a bunch of insects like well you're going to be one of them but you're going to be a warrior so away you go i thought it was funny that you could be a cook instead <laughs> yeah, of a warrior yeah i remember reading that part if like, you want to be a cook you know you can you'll never adventure or do anything might as well be a house plant Cook. <laughs> I guess. Well, so that was goofy. <laughs> I bet he was a good DM. That yeah, way. that just made me think. There's this anime that Mike and I have seen, Nadesco. <laughs> Nadesco. And the main yeah. character is a pilot who's pretty much conscripted into fighting, and all he wants is to be a fry cook. I mean, he's this brilliant pilot, which was why they forced him into Combat service. Pilot, yeah. But he doesn't want to do that. He wants to be a fry cook. (laughs) And so I read that and that was the first thing I thought of just playing a character who gets conscripted into adventuring, but all they really want is to be a cook. (laughs) 
that it's fine it was just funny but uh doesn't make the save and this is probably more of a jim or um liz complaint but there was an awful lot of handwritten fixes in the book that this is the tsr copy we, we have that we're kind of looking at oh yeah the little accent marks and stuff that were yeah there's accent marks on uh, specifically on page 33 there was a one written over the top of a zero <laughs> oops dude i I had a co-op gig in a design department fresh out of high school. So that would have been 78 or 9, 78. And typesetting back then was like the size of two desks. And if you wanted to change fonts, it was a little ball you changed. And that little ball didn't have Oxante goose on it. I get the challenges. I understand. I guess it was distracting for me as a finished product. If it was like his own self-published one, I probably would have been way more forgiving. I think well, when I saw it, number 1975, one. they were still publishing out of Don Kay's garage, I believe. It's interesting. It's kind of distracting, though, because of that. So, All righty. Jim? Before I do my mix of save, it bugged me that I couldn't remember the name of the gentleman who gifted me my Empire of the Petal Throne. Uh, thank you, Chris Masucci. That's that's the guy that, that lit me up two origins ago. Thank you, sir. I'll treasure it always. Uh, Salute. I had to go through hundreds of emails to figure that <laughs> yeah. out. Uh, what makes a save is, I mean, uh, Empire of the Petal Throne is a genre mash post-apocalyptic fantasy setting on an alien planet. Be still my beating heart and take my money now. <laughs> like, like you said, Mike, there's tons of stuff in here to, to steal, and I will. <laughs> what doesn't make the save is, all due respect to Professor Barker, but you almost need to be a college professor to run this setting really well. I don't bring that level of dedication to the table. Yeah, I'll kind of discuss it in mind, too. But yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Well, you are a college professor, so. <laughs> uh, so you have to I, run I, it now. I'm a little one. I, I, I'm not a full one. I'm a little, but anyway, mine. It's really rich in dealing with a world that is not your standard medieval European. And that is neat. It's the first, I'll go out on a limb and say it's the first non-medieval fantasy RPG type setting. And let's face it, to a degree, this is a setting for D&D. The rule system is very similar. It's it's house rule, but that's about it. It's got a nifty idea, particularly for Indian caste culture. You've, you know, cult, social class is very important in this world to the point that there are those built up roads whose uh, name escapes me, but they're like, they're described kind of like the Great Wall of China. And there's three sets of roads, the people on top with the actual sunshine and everything, they travel one direction. If you're the middle caste, you have to go in an interior and then lower caste, you're at the bottom. So Ooh, even the in, Doctor Who again. Even traveling, you're not allowed to interact much with your with your quote unquote betters. And as foreigners, you're down on the totem pole, seriously, until you can work your way up in the city. And that's a nifty idea. If one of the things about D&D is, especially with planar travel, when we were talking about Manual of the Planes, there are so many potential prime material planes your characters can be popped to due to a curse or a magic item going awry or something. Takuma would be a perfect one to use for a you know one or two, three sessions as your PCs are trying to figure out how to get the hell out. That's a fantastic idea. I mean, this would be a great world that's got just enough familiar, but mostly totally out there that your players are going to be going, I don't get it. What what should we do? This always works. You know, what do you mean the barmaid doesn't think I'm hot? You know, that sort of thing. It's it, it would be great use of this game. You're so smart. <laughs> that college professor showing off again. Takes half to quote the song. 
A noun is an annoying person, place, or thing. All the names and words and words and made-up words of words and other words that were made up for the other made-up words to make up for words. And it just, ah! Anyone who listens to this podcast knows I am not a huge fan of that. You know, you want to give me atmospheric mountains? They're the misty mountains or the dread wood or, you know, the dark sands or something that's what you give me the the boogie laga be debatable don't don't give me that mm-hmm. don't I, I don't want it. and this book is full of it it's got a pronunciation guide it's got a a, a you know, oh what's a word not glyph but a guide on the on the script how of to, the main how language to write it and how to read it <laughs> And how to read it, yes. <laughs> and it's got its own little unique rules. And as a, a linguist, I don't doubt that it all holds water. Hell of a lot better than the language experiments I did back in the 80s, I can guarantee you. But it's just too much. If you love that sort of thing, you will eat this up. So you didn't you didn't appreciate that the warriors in the Soliani Empire wear greaves of chlin hide dyed blue with the herb kasuk sakura (laughs) yeah the overawed blue legion or whatever they're there's that voice actor who knows how to read from a script half in japanese (laughs) a light tunic of furia cloth (laughs) no spico klingon yeah yeah i just I mean, it's one of those things you'll either love it, hate it, or ignore it. Plumes of Keshchal feathers. (laughs) Yeah, I I can't love it, and it's too pervasive for me to ignore. I don't think I could run this. I really don't. I'd be willing to give it a try if someone else ran it, just for the experience, but I couldn't guarantee I'd stay in for a whole big campaign. Probably just like a three-session adventure, and then we all sit back and go, is this something we really want to do? So, yeah. And, of course, subsequent editions of this game have gotten bigger, bigger, with lots more detail. And that falls into my my dislike of pre-published settings. I don't like Forgotten Realms for the same reason. Especially since if you end up in a, on, at a table with somebody who knows a lot more than anyone else at the table, unless they're the GM, they're going to be a headache. Mm. When you burn in hell for that remark, at least you'll have company, because I'll be right next to you. <laughs> So what about you, Houseplant? How do you feel about it? <laughs> I was kind of, I don't know. It didn't bug me that much because I got used okay. to the name. Good. But it's the same thing. It's All it does is it put it in an equal sign next to whatever it is I'm supposed to know what it is. Like the, what was the yeah. writing animal? The Deflatus the or the Plotus or the, the Hippopotamus. The, there was a writing Hippopotamus and otherwise there was no real writing animals. And you just go like, oh, whenever they say that name, I know it's a Hippopotamus. Got it. Yeah, and the <laughs> lack of iron... You know, iron being pretty rare. Right. You know, on the other hand, they had that weird treated hide that basically worked like almost as good as steel. And you could make it into all these weird shapes, which was, I guess, a nifty way of explaining super out there fantasy type gear. So, all right. Well, this has been Empire of the Petal Throne by Professor M.A.R. Barger. TSR published 1975. And subsequent editions later. We'll have some links in the show notes. I don't believe the PDF is available. You'll have to look on eBay for an actual copy. But if there, if it is currently in print, we will put a link there about where you can find it today. I blame Mike Menard. 
According to Wikipedia, he introduced Professor Barker to D&D. It's all his fault. <laughs> it's all his fault, Val. I think, if for nothing else, it's skill system and it's other rules. I think if if there had never been an Empire of the Petal Throne, I think gaming would be poorer. Maybe mm-hmm. it wouldn't be much different, but I think some of the more interesting aspects of it might not be there. Well, if I had never read it, I would never want to roleplay a houseplant, so... Well, there you go. <laughs> Dude, come come play Mutant Crawl Classics. That... I guarantee you, you can play a house plant. If you want to play one with a two intelligence, by all means. <laughs> and on that photosynthetic note, say goodbye, everybody. Lean toward the sun. <laughs> See ya. Farewell. Briark Kalamathala does love the Podcast is a production of the Mud Puppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Save for Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and 